0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID 19 briefing for Alberta on September 23rd, 2021. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Metis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. We are hopeful that this will increase the accessibility of our briefings for all Albertans. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 Briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavor to bring timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 crisis in Alberta and take questions from the media. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans, attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 as possible. Today we are going to look at masks and airborne transmission in Alberta. We will begin today with some presentations and discussion on how masking reduces transmission of COVID-19, types of masks, and revisit our conversation on airborne transmission. We have learned a lot about COVID-19 in the last 19 months, and it is critical that Albertans receive accurate science-based information on how to limit their risk. After which, we will take questions from the media and public and try to help Albertans deepen their understanding of how they can keep themselves, their communities, their families safe. Thank you very much for joining us again today. Dr. Vipont will start things off with a brief COVID-19 update for Alberta.
1: Thanks, everybody. And uh, you can just throw the slides up here. We're going to try and do this really quick because I'm really excited about today's um, presentation. Um, so we're just going to go through the numbers quickly. Uh, cases yesterday, 1720. This is the, the second, t- uh, second time or third time we've been above 1700 in the um, The fourth wave here, the Delta wave, it's a 6.2% increase over last uh, Wednesday's numbers. Um, The seven day average now is 1,600 a day. And that's incredibly flat. You can go to the next slide, please. Um, You can see that there. And the positivity continues to bend downwards at 4.2%. I'm trying to do two things at once. Yeah. Yeah. So we're on that slide. And that's compared to last week's 10.72%. Next slide, please. So hospitalizations continue to be incredibly worrying. Uh just going over the last 3 days, uh the, the uh, numbers have been uh 33 up 33 to 800 on Monday, up 31 to 831 and then up a paltry 1 to 832 today. Um uh I would not put any faith in the fact that 832 is accurate and we'll be I'll be updating that daily as we um the new numbers come out. Um next slide please. You can see um Next slide, please. Oh, go backwards. Then I'm missing a slide. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm missing a slide, that's fine. So just going to the ICU, uh, we're down uh, four today to 226, but it's always important to remember that uh, that's a gross, uh, a net number. The gross is we've had, I, I believe, 27 new into the ICU. And so that means 31 either discharged or dead. Um, and uh, Dr. Yu mentioned earlier today that the the average, they're averaging 23 new admissions to the hospital. So even though the number, the the line looks pretty flat over the last week and a bit, that's only because of the number of people that are dying being discharged from the ICU. Next slide, please. I just wanted to point out that hospitalizations, we, um, we have uh, two new kids entering into the hospital today, one at age one to four and one at age 10 to 19. Next slide, please. Oh, here's the missing slides. Just looking at how much bigger this hospitalization and ICU wave is compared to the other ones. Next slide, please. And uh, there's the ICU numbers. You can see how flat that is, but that's a, uh, a bit of an um, illusion because of the a amount of people that are being pushed out of the ICU at this point. Next slide, please. These are the deaths. I think there's 12 listed here. Um, I believe uh, I heard 17 by Dr. Hinshaw. So, um, but these are the 12 that we know the identifiers on. I just want to point out that there's a a female from the ages 30 to 39 who died in in Edmonton. So we're still seeing young deaths and that's very scary. Next slide, please. And the kids, the kids, um, look at how fast the 5 to 11 age group has gone up since September 1st. And you can just see that inflection on the curve how it just starts to race up about five or 10 days after uh, schools opened. Um, I, I keep hearing Dr. Hinshaw saying schools don't drive transmission. It's uh, community communities that drive school transmission. I'm afraid uh, I, I have to uh, emphatically disagree just based on this one image. And I think unless we start accepting some of these truths um, we will continue to fail our province and our kids next slide, please um, this is a brand new graph that Robson Fletcher's been putting out. this is looking at the cases per health zone based on uh, per capita numbers so you can actually see the difference between how much worse it is in the rural areas than the urban areas that blue and yellow line that's that's the urban areas and literally um twice as bad in rural areas in this province and i think we need to accept that this is a problem and manage this Um, it's really um yeah the the urban areas because they're so much bigger it, it looks like the curve is getting much better but in the rural areas it really is not next slide please oh that's it um yeah, uh, I just wanted to, to say how excited I am for this presentation today. I've been working with Connor Rudicky and um, Jennifer McDonald, Dr. McDonald, for, for a long time with Mass for Canada. They really are incredibly smart people. And Dr. Smith, uh, I'm just n- meeting for the first time today. I'm really excited to hear the presentation. And I'm so glad we get to have them uh, provide this information to Albertans. Back to you, Michelle.
0: Thank you very much, yeah. Dr. Yeah. Bypond. Um, With the ongoing Delta tsunami and the continued polarization of masks and aerosol transmission in Alberta, Protect Our Province has assembled a team of Canadian-based experts to talk with Albertans on why deepening our understanding on how transmission happens and the actual differences between various types of masks is crucial to maintaining our individual safety, the safety of our children, healthcare workers, and society as a whole. Before we begin with the presentations, I would like to introduce the scientific experts some of whom Dr. Vipon just mentioned, that are joining us today. Our first panel men- member, um, is a member of the Protect Our Pro- Province Coalition, and I suspect a familiar face to many of you watching. I'm pleased to welcome back Connor Riziki, PhD candidate and Killam scholar focused on aerosol science and technology. He has been a clear, accessible voice throughout this pandemic to help our society understand the nature of airborne transmission and why it is crucial we enact policies and practices that keep us breathing COVID-free air. Our three additional experts are joining us for the first time. These leaders in their fields have been tirelessly advocating to ensure that the life saving acceptance, understanding, and adopting of practical science based measures can limit the severity of spread, the duration of our current crisis, and facilitate the safest possible interactions to keep human beings alive. I am so pleased to welcome Dr. Kevin Hedges, a certified industrial and occupational hygienist from Toronto, a member of the National Aerosol Coalition former president and current board member of the Workplace Health Without Borders International. They have been striving to promote occupational health and safety on the international level, linking advocacy and frontline activities. Dr. Jennifer McDonald, a physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist from Ottawa. She's been collaborating with and learning from several occupational health and safety experts through the Canadian Aerosol Transmission Coalition for about a year. They've been advocating for improved recognition of aerosol and airborne transmission and better emphasis on the appropriate airborne mitigation measures, including better masks, um, which she is going to spend a while walking us through what types are available and what that means, I am very interested in this segment. And we also have with us today, Ontario based Dr. Simon Smith, recently retired from a career as a respiratory filter research and development. That's quite a little mouthful. And he serves on various advisory groups and on committees for the development of respirator performance and the use of standards in Canada and internationally. I don't think we could have asked for a more intelligent, focused, knowledgeable group to be joining us here for Protect Our Province Alberta today. I am so thrilled to have you all. Connor is going to start us off with a presentation, and then we are going to move through all of the wonderful folks we have with us today. Thank you, Connor.
2: Great, uh, so thank you obviously for the introduction and, and to the rest of the group, uh, including all the people in the background that you know really helping keep this uh, grassroots effort to bring important information to Albertans going. Um, so for those who are watching in our first week of these briefings, I, I presented some information back then on airborne transmission and how it relates to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I tried to identify a few of the sort of best practices that people can use to help mitigate transmission in different places. The basic idea uh, boils down to us evolving our understanding of how this disease transmits from person to person. Last year, we were quite worried about uh, you know, surfaces and disinfecting everything that we weren't touching. Uh, but now we know that we need to be more concerned with the air that we're breathing. So as such, we'll be talking today again a lot about aerosols. And just as a quick reminder, um, you know, a useful mental model uh, to think about how aerosols behave is actually cigarette smoke. So what I'd like to do today is dive into a bit more of the science behind why we're very confident that we need to take airborne transmission more seriously. I'm very glad to have the other panelists here as well, uh, and they've got some fantastic information to provide uh, from a few perspectives that have been underrepresented during this pandemic. So my aim in the next few minutes is to really set the stage for them um, by showing that we really do have a huge amount of evidence that airborne transmission is important with this disease and that we should be reevaluating certain aspects of what we're doing. Next slide. So one area that has led to an immense amount of confusion has been over the role of droplets versus aerosols in the transmission of SARS-CoV-2. Early on in the pandemic, it it became very clear that experts from different backgrounds were describing these things in completely different and inconsistent ways. So let's first clarify what we mean when we talk about droplets. Droplets are basically big, heavy blobs of liquid that fall very quickly to the ground. So when somebody coughs or sneezes, they produce some of these big droplets, and they can expel them with considerable speed. Droplets themselves are quite big, uh, with diameters greater than something about 100 micrometers. And this is similar to the width of about a human hair and is actually visible to the naked eye. So as such, they're relatively easy to detect without specialized equipment. Now, being so big, they have a lot of mass, and gravity pulls them down out of the air very quickly. So these droplets tend to travel ballistically. They kind of move like spitballs or like cannonballs. Now, if you're facing somebody who is coughing or sneezing, and they're within a few meters or so, some of these droplets might manage to land directly onto mucous membranes, like the eyes, or the inside of your mouth if you're yawning, you're talking, or something like that. But the droplets are actually so large that they can't really be inhaled into our respiratory tracts. They they aren't nimble enough to actually navigate the bends of our nostrils or the back of our mouth. And so they don't make it into our airways. So when we're talking about droplets, we don't have to worry about inhaling them. So how do you prevent your exposure to droplets? Well, this is where the idea of droplet precautions actually come into play. Uh, The essential idea is to place a barrier between your mucous membranes and the person who may be coughing or sneezing directly towards you. Um, By doing this, you're preventing those droplets and any virus they might contain from actually reaching vulnerable tissues on your body. Now, droplets do not move around corners, and they fall to the ground very quickly. So putting distance between you and the person who is coughing or sneezing is really going to help reduce the odds that a droplet is going to move on that perfect trajectory that would end up with it landing in your eyes or in your mouth. Next slide, please. So what about aerosols? Um, Well, aerosols are smaller bits of matter that tend to float around in the air for more than a few seconds. They're carried around by air currents, and they respond very quickly to changes in the wind or flow of air around them. And because they're smaller and much more nimble than droplets are, we can actually inhale them into our respiratory tracts. And depending on their size, these aerosols can penetrate deep into our lungs, where they may actually end up landing on the inner surfaces of our airways and inside of our alveoli. And as a rule of thumb we usually think of aerosols as having diameters smaller than something at about 100 micrometers since particles smaller than this size can remain suspended for a few minutes to to hours and i do want to clarify that there there isn't really an exact delineation between droplets and aerosols But this 100 micrometer size range is a reasonable approximation, where the ballistic behavior that we tend to attribute to large droplets starts to transition into this more floaty behavior of aerosols, so those things that will tend to stick around in the air for a little bit of time. Next slide. So now that we've better described what aerosols are, we have to determine if they're actually important for the transmission of disease. One of the first questions we have to ask is, do people actually generate these aerosols? And the resounding answer is yes. And in fact, we produce a lot of them. Uh, But these aerosols are so small that they're almost impossible to detect um, or to measure accurately without the use of specialized equipment. So this isn't really a case of holding a plastic bag in the air and thinking that you'll be able to get an accurate measurement or capture aerosols that you're concerned with. You need to know how to measure these aerosols if you actually want to measure them. So fortunately, we've had a lot of really great studies come out in the last year that have utilized appropriate instrumentation to look at how much aerosol people are producing during different sorts of activities. And a good example of this sort of equipment is kind of shown here on the bottom left. So it turns out that even during normal activities like talking, exercising, and shouting, we're producing far more aerosol than during some of the medical procedures that have been traditionally considered as aerosol generating. So what this means is that even without aerosol-generating medical procedures, people can be producing a lot of aerosol. So uh, we now know that people are essentially constantly producing aerosols, and that they can produce a lot of aerosols when we're doing things like singing, shouting, coughing, and even talking. Next slide, please. So the next question is whether these aerosols can contain infectious virus. And again, the answer is yes. So the bits of matter that we emit as aerosols are actually made up mostly of respiratory fluid or saliva, but they also contain anything that is inside those fluids. So if you're infected with SARS-CoV-2 and you're actively shedding virus, your respiratory fluid and saliva will contain SARS-CoV-2 viral material. And this is actually what we rely on to diagnose infection with SARS-CoV-2, the presence of viral material in saliva or respiratory fluid. So if our actively uh, shedding person generates aerosols when they speak, cough, talk, whatever, some of the aerosol that they emit is going to contain virus. You know, It's not a case where every single aerosol particle is going to contain an individual or multiple viruses. And in fact, many of these viruses won't contain or many of these aerosols won't contain any virus at all for the typical sorts of concentrations that we're observing in these fluids. But some of these particles absolutely contain viral material. And several studies have now successfully cultured infectious virus from air samples taken near COVID-19 patients. The infectivity of these virus-containing aerosols has also been well-demonstrated in a number of different animal studies that have clearly shown transmission occurring through the inhalation route. And I want to be clear that um, the evidence that we've gained since the start of this pandemic in support of inhalation as an important route of transmission is, is frankly overwhelming. Uh, we have more evidence for inhalation playing an extremely important role in the transmission of COVID-19 than we do with essentially any other disease. And this includes classic examples of airborne diseases like measles and tuberculosis. Now, various researchers have done an absolutely incredible job amassing this evidence and in fleshing out this framework of disease transmission. And what I think this knowledge is pointing us towards is that aerosols are playing an important role not only for COVID-19, but for respiratory diseases and transmission in general. Next slide, please. And just to reiterate the point that there's a lot of evidence in support of this, this is just a partial sample of a number of the various papers that have demonstrated uh, some of the critical elements that are pointing towards inhalation exposure being very important. You know, inhalation exposure um, is something that's occurring both at short range and at long range. It's something that is explaining the preponderance of pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic transmission. It's something that's also explaining the presence of viral material on various no-touch surfaces that has been observed time and time again in different patient rooms. So this is a consistent framework that is absolutely based on the evidence, and we need to adapt our policy to consider it more directly. Next slide. Now we can start to describe some of the things that influence transmission through inhalation. So first of all it's important to recognize that aerosols spread from the source and they're most concentrated near the spot of emission so this means that inhalation is important both in close proximity to others so within about that two meter distance that we've seen used so often and across longer distances particularly when ventilation is suboptimal and on that note you know determining if ventilation is suboptimal is something that needs to be performed by qualified professionals who understand what to look for In Alberta, this would be licensed engineers uh, registered with a PEGA that follow the up-to-date guidelines from ASHRAE and that recognize the importance of airborne transmission. Now, the actual risk of you becoming infected from inhaling viruses relates to the amount of aerosol that you're exposed to. Factors that uh, affect this include distance to the emitter, includes the time that is spent sharing that same air with them, the number and type of mitigating layers that are in place, the amount of virus that is actually being emitted by the person who's infected or the people who are infected and various environmental conditions. So needless to say, this is this is a complex problem and there's a lot of statistical elements here. Um, But despite that complexity, we know that to reduce the risk of infection, we need to reduce our exposure to infectious aerosol. Next slide. And just to remind viewers about mitigating transmission, The key to mitigation is in recognizing that, you know, while no single layer of mitigation is perfect, we can vastly reduce the risks of transmission occurring when we layer up multiple individual actions, like physical distancing and masks, together with shared responsibilities, you know, like the the good testing and tracing, improved ventilation and air filtration, and widespread vaccination. You know, we can also look to improve individual layers themselves to make them more effective, like moving from masks to respirators, uh, which is something that the other panelists today are going to be talking a lot about in depth. Next slide, please. And one complicating factor that has really made things hard to keep control of has been the emergence of the new variants. And we've seen that some of these variants are actually much better at spreading from person to person. And a recent study concluded that this is partly because SARS-CoV-2 is evolving toward more efficient aerosol generation. So this implies that... You know, we want if we want to keep a handle on transmission until we're absolutely sure that we have sufficient vaccine coverage. We need to be using layered controls and tight-fitting masks and respirators to reduce inhalation transmission, and and this increased transmissibility of variants is very clearly demonstrated by the Delta variant, which, as we've observed here in Alberta, can spread extremely easily in the absence of adequate public health measures. And uh, next slide. And uh, finally, I just want to highlight how there is a disparity in approaches to, to the default precautions that are used with healthcare workers and COVID-19 patients, depending on the jurisdiction you're located in. So in Alberta here, the default precautions are actually contact and droplet, um, where you know N95s are, are only to use uh, during uh, if, if these healthcare workers are performing a specific list of aerosol-generating medical procedures or, uh, if deemed necessary, following a point-of-care risk assessment. This is actually in quite stark contrast to, for example, the CDC, which recommends respirator use during any interaction, any interaction with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 patients. And I think we really need to question why we aren't using this sort of precautionary approach here in Canada. And as has been discussed by some of the very excellent uh, infectious disease practitioners in the United States, we should consider the universal use of respirators in acute care settings when we have community transmission as high as it is currently in Alberta. So I'll end it there, and thank you for your attention. And I hope this serves as a good bit of introduction for the remaining discussions from the rest of the panel today.
0: Thank you very much, Connor. I am now going to bring Dr. Hedges into the conversation to expand on some of the things you talked about. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks very much for the warm introduction, Michelle. And great to meet you, Connor, um, finally. And and Joe, thanks for, for inviting me to talk as well with the group. So I'm I'm an occupational hygienist. I've got thirty years experience. I'm also uh, certified. Um, I need to build up maintenance points. So I generally deal with um, workplace exposures. Um, so the you know the science of um, you know recognition recognition evaluation control is really imp- it's part of what we do. So we look at exposures to hazards in workplaces. But our science is actually translatable to this situation as well um, for the public. Um, So the first slide, please. Uh, I'm former president of Workplace Health Without Borders and also current board member. Um, We have a big international group of occupational health scientists. um, And we're also, um, we work closely with the World Health Network. Uh, We're a partner with them as well. And they've got this great infographic. And the good thing about the World Health Network is they're independent from any political body or government. So this is a completely science-based organization. And they really promote the um, elimination strategy rather than mitigation strategy. So if you think about countries like New Zealand, they they follow the elimination strategy. Um, So I've just provided a recent report here that talks about um, countries do much better when they follow the elimination strategy. Their economy even is much better as well. So, um, and there's some links to some resources there. Next slide, please. So an occupational hygienist, as I said, we, um, we, we sort of deal with um, a number of different hazards, including um, chemical, biological and physical. And, you know, when it comes to biological, uh, w- this, this is part of our science. So there is actually um, uh, international standard um, ISO 7708. Um, it's actually an air quality standard for particle size def- uh, definitions for health related sampling. And it talks about um, inhalable particulate being less than, uh, you know, 100 microns. So we've known for a long time how to control exposure To these kind of particulates and, um, you know, SARS-CoV-2 is is no different. Um, It's it's in an aerosol form. Um, So we also really push for respirators rather than masks. So respirators are uh, personal protective equipment. Uh, They're not just a barrier that goes in the face. They protect the wearer. But a lot of the recent research has shown that not only will they protect the wearer really well, um, with a good face fit um, they're also great um, as source control so you know the source control is almost equivalent to um, to them as being used as personal protective equipment um, and there's a standard that uh, Dr Smith will talk about CSA 94.4 that talks about proper training and, and fit testing and, and the importance of all the different elements in the program um, next slide please Um, so, a res- it's really important that the audience knows the difference between, um, you know, face covering, surgical masks, which is really just there for as a barrier against droplets, and, and respirators, including N95s. Um, so I do, I do have um, respirators here that I will, um, you know, I i just hold one up at the moment. Um, so this is, a, this is a box of respirators that I leave next to the front door here. And I, I basically tell uh, my family that if you're going to a, in a crowded setting or indoors and you can't avoid it, then this is probably something you should be wearing. Um, but if I usually just go outside and walk around, um, this is a KN95. So it's, it's nowhere near as effective as the... Um, this one here is a can 929 with straps that go around the back of the head and you can get a much better face fit. But, but these are way, way better than either cloth or surgical masks uh, because they have a, a much better face fit. Next slide, please. And just to um, you know, reiterate what I was talking about, um, surgical face masks are not personal protective equipment. They're not designed for that whereas um, N95 respirators are. But what we're seeing now is, um, you know, some of the, the leading scientists, such as Don Milton, for example, from the US, um, when they go outdoors, they're, they're wearing a, a, elastomeric respirators. So elastomeric respirators are becoming more popular. Um, so they're not disposable. Um, you know, the, the, they're, they're long-lasting, and, and at the end of the day, they're much more cost-effective. And then in acute... Um, Healthcare settings, um, you know, we really kind of advocate for powered air purifying respirators. So I don't know if anybody here has ever watched Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> so you'll see quite a lot of the, um, the doctors and nurses walking around a hospital in a powered air purifying respirator. So basically what happens with that, air is actually flushed over the front of the face and pushed out. So we, we're not so much worried about leaks going into the, the face piece because it's it's a positive pressure respirator rather than a a negative pressure respirator like the N95. Um, That's me. Thank you very much for uh, letting me share my um, information with you.
0: No, thank you very much, Dr. Hedges, for sharing your information with us. Um, We are so fortunate to have all of you guys here with us today. Um, Next, I'd like to bring on Dr. Smith, who I suspect is going to have a lot to add to the conversation around how those standards are made, why those respirators vary from other things and what that means for all of us. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith.
4: Thank you very much. And thank you again for the introduction. And it's it's great to meet the other panelists too. So thank you. Um, I'm glad to have the opportunity to expand on some of the, the points that Connor and, and Kevin have made and to uh, add a bit more detail and and some advice on what to watch for in some cases and maybe update information on some of the concerns that existed earlier on in the pandemic. Um, First of all, with respect to respirators, uh, Kevin has kindly made the distinction. We we have uh, differences between face coverings, surgical masks and respirators. When it comes to Areas of workplaces where in, in workplaces where you need to have re- protection, uh, this can include traditional chemical uh, or, or dust sorts of hazards as well as biological hazards. Uh, it is necessary to use an approved respirator. Legislation in Canada uh, drives this, and so some agency is. Uh, an, uh, Uh, So some agencies are set up across the world which conduct approvals to standards and the one that we adopt in Canada widely is the US system National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health or NIOSH and it is NIOSH that came up with the designations like N95, N99 that we we have become familiar with. Um, There are some other agencies and uh, During the pandemic, because of shortages, some of those uh, have become familiar. We've talked about KN95s or FFP2 respirators at times, Uh, but NIOSH is the the one that has been around for 50 years and and, and is very well recognized in Canada. And just to mention it it is part of the CDC. It's a US body. It sets performance standards. It also conducts the testing and approves the products all in one, one one-stop agency. In other jurisdictions, there are different bodies that do each of those functions. It's also a very uh, comprehensive research institute and and conducts research into the use of respirators and other personal protective equipment in workplaces to continually advance safety in workplaces. Uh, When it comes to approving products, it's uh, got a comprehensive series of tests that it, it mandates. It also undertakes checks on the manufacturer quality and documentation. And even audits products, buys them anonymously and tests them to make sure that manufacturers haven't changed uh, what they're doing uh, from the time that they had the product approved and uh, overall provides an extremely strong assurance of the capability of products sold in workplaces. And having been on the, the manufacturing side uh, before that and the design side, it, you you become intimately uh, involved with the, the vagaries of the Irish standard, and it, it's uh, it's all of its requirements. And so, what I can say comprehensively, it, it is a very strong standard. What is used to indicate approval? Um, in fact, is, is requirements for for uh, same slide, please. There, uh, thanks. Uh, is requirements for uh, marking and. Uh, set information provided with products, one key thing to look for on a NIOSH approved product is the TC number. You see there TC number 84A and so on. That indicates that it has met requirements to NIOSH uh, to the particular standard, in this case, a, a filtering uh, face piece requirement. Uh, N95 is used and there are various N, R and P and with a number designations, indicating the efficiency of the respirator at the most uh, penetrating particle size and also the type of aerosol it's approved for. N is non-oil, which covers a wide range of different classes, but there are certain specialized ones for oil-based respirators. Um, And so uh, we have uh, historically for the last 50 years depended on our standards. And uh, that has, again, proven extremely reliable. Uh, So that is what to look out for when uh, sourcing a respirator for use in a workplace. Just need to mention that uh, with the pandemic we had uh, a great, great demand of course for approvals and uh, to speed the process uh, last year Health Canada created a new specification uh, for temporary use to, to allow new manufacturers in Canada to have products approved for healthcare workplaces. So you may see some other designations uh, such as 95PFE that I used. Again, another caution with respect to respirators is that you need to look out for misleading or counterfeit claims. Um, Sometimes manufacturers use N95 in the name of the product or or in in some of the the information that's provided with it, but the product may not actually meet requirements. Uh, It may meet the efficiency, but not the fit, for instance, and so not give you the protection that you expect from that product. one aspect of this is that ear loop type products, which as Kevin mentioned, do not fit as well as the ones with the headbands around the, the head, um, are never NIOSH approved. And uh, actually NIOSH runs a counterfeit information site uh, that explains all of this a- and has lists of identified counterfeit products. And again, that's part of their audit system. So uh, probably ne- next slide, if that's okay, thanks. Okay, wanted to talk a bit about respirator supply because that was cited as an issue and it even was brought up as a you know, one rationale why healthcare facilities couldn't use better respiratory protection because there wasn't a supply. And it's true that at the start of the pandemic, um, there were issues. We had only one indigenous manufacturer in Canada of respirator filters and they didn't make the common filtering face piece type. Uh, so everything that was used was imported and again with NIOSH being the accepted approval in authorities across Canada um, there was a a shortage and so one uh, measure taken first of all was to accept respirators with approvals from other authorities uh, than NIOSH that has some pluses and minuses there are generally equivalencies they're not exactly the same uh, across these different standards but there is general capability there are some problems where certain standards did not require the same uh, protocols for establishment of good fit. And in in some cases, for instance, the Chinese standard, the GB2626 that gave us the KN95, even products that met that standard uh, may not fit well to the uh, faces in North America because the the head shape between Asian and Caucasian bodies is different. And so they may well fit their own uh, populations, but they may not fit ours. So that's... um, again something uh, that was it took time to realize these issues. Uh, very quickly with the pandemic, of course new manufacturing operations started up, uh, new importers started up to try and bring in the supply and one other step that was taken was that Health Canada uh, gave out an order allowing the use of, we might say quote industrial respirators in healthcare. This was interesting to those of us that have been in the business because in terms of the design standards, the performance requirements, and even the selection and use standards, there is no difference between, quote, an industrial respirator and those that have been used in healthcare. Um, there is one special case where they have extra testing for splash protection. But apart from that, uh, it is perfectly acceptable to use an, an N95 type filtering face piece that's been, uh, say, sold in a hardware store for protection in woodworking it can be used in healthcare because the filtration criteria are exactly the same and so uh, that's been perhaps a a bit of a a myth that's been perpetuated and and sometimes may even have led to shortages because people thought they couldn't use product was perfectly acceptable but just to say that was made clear in this order and so that is something now in place and later last year health canada actually created its own specification so that they could approve respirators on a temporary basis uh, for use in healthcare in parallel with the NIOSH standard. So they went through a series of tests Health Canada organized uh, through different laboratories and that demonstrated their capability which broadly matched what NIOSH required. And so you may see as I mentioned earlier these designations like 95PFE which are the Health Canada designations but, but they're used in healthcare. Uh, but the, their idea there was to aid, again, emerging Canadian manufacturers uh, to uh, have the ability rapidly to uh, have their products deployed into uh, the necessary places in healthcare. There's a longer term solution that's underway right now. And that is that, that the Canadian Standards Association is actually developing a new respirator certification system and creating a new standard for respirator performance. Uh, this is a very comprehensive thing to do. You imagine, as I describe what NIOSH does, Canada has to reproduce that uh, for its own needs. And so um, it may be organized slightly differently from NIOSH, uh, but we, we have a new standard that's uh, just about to be published. And uh, with that, it will feed into a full certification system that's likely to become effective in the course of next year. So over time, you'll see a new uh, description of respirators uh, for for. Uh, specific trademark reasons we can't call them n95 type for instance it will be probably some combination of ca-n95 that sort of thing but you will see these deployed as well and there are a few extras put into this standard Uh, we do say extra tests on uh, the strap strength uh, to ensure that 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 is uh, adequate there's actually a shelf life requirement put into the standard that the manufacturer has to declare a shelf life which is not necessary for nash approved product and for the n95 type products there's going to be a a specific designator indicating the breathability, because that, when it comes to use of respirators, is one of those Fs, it's the the function type uh, requirement. Uh, If it's hard to breathe through a respirator, you get issues like leakage around the edges, and you also get people getting tired faster, it's less comfortable to wear the respirator less often than they really should. And so by being able to identify and select respirators that are easier to breathe through, we are providing uh, better products uh, for the man- for the uh, workforce and inspiring manufacturers to develop better products uh, over-, over the course of time uh, that will improve overall health and safety. So that, that is what's coming up next. So uh, I see Michelle, are we over time? <laughs> no, we're good. Oh, no. You
0: sounded like you were wrapping up.
4: No, I have, uh, I have oh, more slides. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, yeah, uh, a couple more slides. Uh, next one was... Uh, not that one, no. Still the same presentation, uh, slide number three. We will three. get it back up. Thanks. Sorry, I was wrapping up one slide, but I hadn't. If we're okay for time, I'll I'll talk about selection and then a bit about the relative effectiveness of different kinds of face covering.
0: You can continue, and we will make sure that that slide appears for you momentarily, okay. Doctor Smith. Okay. No
4: okay. I have I have it in front of me anyway, so I can I can speak to it. Um. Should I talk to the slide or just talk talk in general? Um,
0: Both, Dr. Smith, both. We'll pop the slide up next to you in a second. We're just grabbing it off of the slide deck. So you start talking (laughs) and we'll pull it up.
4: Righto. Again, something to emphasize. Uh, There's been, obviously, a a lot of information spreading uh, about uh, respirators uh, and and, uh, respiratory protection overall. One thing to say that for... Uh, providing respirators, particularly in workplaces, um, it is not acceptable just to hand out the nearest thing that that, uh, comes to hand and say, there's a respirator, go to it. Um, Where a respirator is needed, and this is confirmed by uh, determination of a a, a hazard assessment and uh, evaluation of the work environment, uh, where that is necessary, uh, and it is is legally necessary, where, where there are obviously hazards uh, that the workforce encounters. A respiratory protection program is required, and this includes many aspects. You need to have medical evaluation of the potential respirator wearers to make sure that wearing a respirator is not gonna have any adverse health effects on them. There is a hazard analysis and risk assessment that goes into determining uh, where uh, and how much uh, the hazard is and uh, what uh, then, Uh, is needed in terms of the work practices to allow safe uh, work in that area. Uh, This involves training, it involves uh, selection of the appropriate kind of respirator and when that has been done then fit testing to make sure that the respirator is well suited to the wearer, that it fits them, there is no gross leakage uh, that is going to compromise the um, effectiveness of the respirator. Having a highly filtering respirator is fine but if it doesn't fit the face well, if there's big gaps, uh, you, you then get uh, obviously bypassing of the uh, uh, the effectiveness effective area of the respirator and, and it's next to useless. It's actually worse because people may think they're protected when they're not. And there are requirements for the uh, appropriate use, change out schedules if necessary, maintenance of respirators, particularly these powered air systems that involve rechargeable batteries and uh, monitoring the uh, long term health uh, of the workforce and the uh, obviously record keeping as part of that. Uh, this is, this is, uh, say, very comp- comprehensive. It, it is mandated in legislation across Canada. And one solution uh, that uh, employers have at hand is the Canadian standard, the one Kevin mentioned, uh, Z94.4, uh, which provides uh, comprehensive guidance in how to set up and maintain respirator programs and in appropriate selection, use and maintenance of respirators. So it's a, it's a very effective standard. Um, I mentioned one thing in this standard, which is that Uh, Since 2011, uh, that has provided guidance on selection of respirators for biological aerosols. Now, this is uh, key to protection during a pandemic like COVID. It was actually developed after the SARS uh, incidents and following the SARS commission reports. And it builds on the principles in that of of, uh, uh, precautionary principle. And of providing proper respiratory protection, not uh, requiring use of, say, surgical masks that don't provide protection.
0: And we're Uh, going to get into that right now, Dr. Smith, because our lovely Dr. McDonald is going to come on and show us a massive gamut of all of the various masks, respirators. I have learned so many things already today um, that we can use at home. I am personally going to go grab my mass selection of masks and respirators once we are done and see which ones work for my face the best. Thank you so very much, Dr. McDonald, for being with us. Hi there. I am excited for this demonstration, so thank you so very much.
5: So if you guys can just pull up that PDF, I'll just quickly show that. Sorry, guys, we have so much to talk about with masks. It's there is certainly a lot to talk about, but we don't want to um, go on for too long for you guys. So I'll try and do this pretty quickly, but I do think it's helpful to see some of the practical sides of it. And certainly uh, at the end, Simon and Kevin, if I say anything incorrect, you know, I'm I'm really not an expert before the pandemic. I didn't know anything about masks and uh, people like Simon and Kevin taught me so much about this topic. So um, I'm hoping to tra- help translate that to uh, to you guys today. Um, so the um, fit uh, filtration uh, efficiency and the function of your mask is very key to prevent that um, inhalation of aerosols uh, so you can see here we have a nice little diagram that shows at the left it's probably not it's still going to be helpful for aerosols but the filters uh, towards the right of the screen are going to be quite a bit more helpful and the same with the fit of your mask so um, there's different sort of tips and tricks we can do to try and improve the fit and then we can get fancier and get a really um, approved standardized respirator um, or even fancier uh, type equipment that's going to be even better protection. And we already talked about function where we want the mask that you choose to be breathable and comfortable and of course also affordable. It would be great if we had a more uh, universal access to these fancier respirators within Canada. And I hope that. Um, that may still be an option, even if they're more affordable, um, but uh, uh, u- more universal access would be really nice. So I'm just going to start by showing you guys a surgical mask. Um, here is a ASTM level three surgical mask this is by Canadian company VitaCore. And um, so what that means is it's an excellent fluid barrier um, and it's actually decent at filtering uh, aerosols. Um, however, you can see it's not the best fit. So there's some gaps on the sides here. There's gaps underneath. There's even some gaps around the nose, even though I'm pressing it down because it's not that tight either. So if I blow out, I can feel all my breath coming at the side. So it's probably leaking 20 to 50% of the air is not even going through the mask, even though the material is excellent, it's going around. Um, So how do I improve that? One option is to just use a simple um, ear saver. And what I would do there is I'm not going to put it on here, but I would hook that on. So now I'm making my uh, mask basically a headband type mask. It's going to take less pressure on your ears and it's also going to uh, tighten it up against your face to get rid of some of this gaps. Um, One another option, which is fairly easy since many of us have lots of pretty cloth masks that we've bought over the last year. So you don't have to throw them out. You can still use them. So you put a fancier mask underneath, one that has uh, more proven filtration efficiency, and then you can take a cloth mask over top. So what that does is it tightens up the sides here so that there's not as much gapping. When I breathe out now, I don't feel quite as much air and I can adjust this as well um, to fit it better. And then the other thing is um, I would choose not this one um, because this one's too thick. So I have way too many layers on here. It's feeling hot. It's kind of hard to breathe. So if you are going to do that, um, I would recommend a thinner cloth mask and one that does fit tight to your face because it's almost you're using the cloth mask like a brace. And finally, I'm going to show you what a mask brace looks like here. So um, this one is a fit, a fix the mask mask brace. Um, Uh, which can be purchased. You can also make these, they have designs online for making them. Um, And you can also um, uh, 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 wait for some newer ones that are coming out. There's a Canadian made model that's sort of like a plastic shell that fits over the mask and under it, which looks really cool. So keep your eyes out for that. So the idea here, and you should do this in front of the mirror and uh, I'm just going to put this on my nose here. Okay, bear with me. This isn't something that, you know, you would want to do. Sorry, there we go. Um, It's not something that you would want to be wearing if you had to take it on and off multiple times in the day because it is a bit finicky. Try not to make it look too silly here. Okay, and I'm going to put that on like that. So you can see here, the uh, nose piece is fitting along the bridge of my nose. It's going on the sides, it's going under my chin, and there's nothing leaking out the sides here. So now when I breathe in and out, all the air is coming through the mask. I don't feel anything leak. I could even do an actual seal check. So what I do is cut my hands over my mouth like this, inhale in and exhale. And when I inhale sharply, I'll feel the mask material come in towards my face. And when I exhale, I felt it bulge out. So this is actually a really good option. This is probably almost as good as a respirator. Um, Obviously it's uh, uh, impromptu, it's sort of a DIY type of option because of pandemic. It's not going to be approved for healthcare workers and high risk workers, but it's going to do a pretty good job and you have a nice fit for this. So certainly something to think about if you have a bunch of procedure masks that you know are decent quality lying around, you can get yourself a mask brace. Uh, Next, I'm going to just quickly show you guys that uh, Kevin mentioned it previously, a KN95 style. So this is an ear loop model. It's bifold. So what you have to do when you open these bifold ones up is actually press down the metal thing first at the top the, ear, uh, the nose piece. If you don't do that, it makes a fold and you'll have a leak spot there. Then I'm gonna cup it on my face, okay? And I'm gonna press that down on the sides. And you can see this mask was designed to fit around my face. So there's no big gaps um, or leak points there. The problem is it's not quite as tight because of the ear loop design as uh, Simon was explaining. So uh, because of that, if I really blow out, I can feel a bit of air coming out the sides here. So how could I improve that even further? If I was just going, you know, to a well ventilated grocery store and maintaining my distance, this is probably good enough. It's easy to put on and off. Uh, but if I really want to, um, you know, increase my safety, I could even add a um, ear saver to the back and now I'm really tightening it up. So now um, if I blow out, I really don't feel anything leaking out. So that is certainly an option to improve the fit of that mask. Um, this is, I won't put this one on, but that's a true uh, N95 approved. Uh, mask. So the reason the reason this one's approved uh, NIOSH N95. Well, sorry, it's not NIOSH approved because it's a new uh, Canadian model. Uh, but the, uh, the... Oh, not done yet, Ellie. <laughs> sorry, that's my daughter there. Um, so the reason this one is uh, better for healthcare is because it has the headband versus the um, ear loop design here. Um and finally I should have kept Ellie in here to show her the children's mask, which I almost got to, but she probably wouldn't cooperate. So here's a this one folds open like three, like this. Okay. And this is the one I wear at work. Um I've been wearing it for almost a year now, very comfortable. You kind of push in the sides a little bit, um, and it cups on your face. Put the top mat, uh strap up here, bottom strap down here. I'm gonna pull it down and up. Press that down here and now I'm going to try a seal check. So I'm going to put my, cut my hands over, inhale sharply. I feel the mask coming in. I'm going to exhale. I feel it bulge out. I don't feel anything leaking around my eyes or around my the cheeks. So This fits really well. And I've passed a fit test on this mask with a, a port account test. So of 200, which is the perfect you can get on that. So I do know that it does fit well for me. Um, and I should mention this is a, a can 99 That means it has very even better than 95% uh, uh, particle filtration efficiency. Here is a kid's mask. Um, this one is the uh, Canada Strong one. They're quite cute. Um, I know a, a bunch of kids who are wearing these now to school and actually uh, everyone that I've heard from has said that their kids find them more comfortable than their old uh, cloth masks. Um, These are ear loop models. So obviously they're not going to be a perfect um, seal to the face, uh, but they do a pretty good job. um, And obviously the material is excellent. Um, And then just finally, I want to show you guys a reusable uh, model. So this is an Envo mask. um, So you could sort of think of it like a a, a type of elastomeric. Um, It's actually fairly affordable if you're going to use it every day. Um, And this one, it comes with a head strap well but this one has ear loops which you can actually just hook them over your head because that's obviously a better fit just give me a second so i'm adjusting this here so because it's silicone um it's very comfortable and it fits most face shapes so let's do a seal check it's sucking in towards my face bulging out and there's no leakage here It does have a valve um, and people are very worried about the valves, but there's always there's often a little bit of leakage and there's a lot of leakage with a surgical mask. So there's actually less leakage with this um, for this is better source control than a surgical mask. Um, But you could also tape the valve um, so that the air just filters out through this material and it would still work even better for source control. So my only thing about this is it does look kind of silly. So we're not used to seeing people walking around like this. So it doesn't meet the fourth F, which is fashion but otherwise it's an excellent option. It's very comfortable and it uh, is a very good mask. So I think that's it. I'm gonna take this off and stop looking silly.
0: I love it so very, very much, Dr. McDonald, and especially with that fourth F of fashion. I'm going to pop back up your fit slide again before we say goodbye to this portion of the presentation, because we had some requests on the YouTube to have a look at it again. But of all of the masks you talked about, you'd mentioned that the tiny humans ones had come from Canada mm-hmm. Strong. We've been getting a lot of questions in on both Twitter and in the YouTube stream around where to shop.
5: Where to shop from us? yeah um, mm-hmm. we have a uh mass for canada created a document that has a list of a lot of the ones that have been health canada authorized um the the sort of that uh, extra layer of um, uh standardization that and that simon's been talking about so that you avoid the counterfeit ones so if they're on that list as well as on that cdc list that he talked about um, to avoid the counterfeit ones, then you know they're better. So we can probably link that up somewhere. It's It's got a lot of good options. Um, but there's lots of nice Canadian options now. I, think, uh, I don't want to leave any out, but Eclipse, uh, Canada Strong, uh, VitaCore. Um, I think there's a, a, a Canada Mask with a Q. Um, so there's a, a bunch of uh, companies that have really stepped up. Um, there's other companies that are working on other... Um, Uh, reusable models which are excellent Um, um, so I think uh, there's and I think most of those are on that uh, document.
0: I just want to quickly pop this back up again for everybody watching at home and Jennifer Dr. McDonald would it be okay if we tweeted this out from the Protect Our Province um, Twitter account later today? Yep, absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so very much. I'm going to bring everybody back into our conversation as we say goodbye Goodbye. today. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Um, From our panelists to the media and folks watching at home, today's panel contained a lot of really critical information for keeping everyone safe. Today's panel included a lot of subject matter, so please feel free to revisit and share sections of the panel, the whole panel, all of the bits and pieces, because this information can literally save lives. I want to take this opportunity to, as we say goodbye today, to thank everyone who supported our GoFundMe campaign yesterday. Asking for support is never an easy thing, but as always, the generosity of Albertans came through. Um... We really do hope that eventually we will no longer be getting together two or three times a week in this forum. Um, We expect policy decisions to be made to keep us safe. But until the time that our government prioritizes transparency and human life and decency in a meaningful way, we will continue. So, last night, as soon as we noticed that our goal had been reached, um, we paused the GoFundMe campaign because we really value every single one of you so much, and we would never want to reach beyond what our hard costs are. Um, but if our situation continues for longer than we would like it to, um and we, require any future support, we promise that we will let you all know. But from every single member of our coalition, thank you. Thank you so very, very much. I do not have a current update on Eric, which I know folks at home were hoping to have today. Um, As soon as we hear something via Eric's Twitter or via someone else that is shareable, we will make sure to reshare that through the Protect Our Province Alberta. Um, We will be back again on Tuesday, or maybe before, hopefully not, um, to help every Albertan gain access to as much science-based information as we can provide them with. Once again, thank you so very much to this amazing panel of experts from across our country who have so much knowledge that they chose to share with us today. Because like all of us watching, they also want every single Albertan Canadian human on this planet to survive through this wave. Until next time, remember, COVID is airborne. Wear the best available mask you have access to. I learned a lot about them today. And vaccinations really do save lives. Thank you, everyone and stay safe.